Let's pray and jump into the book of James. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day again. Thank you for being able to witness Dax being baptized. And I pray that that would be a continued catalyst in this church, that when we are obedient to you in the raising of our children, when we are obedient and serving in the ministries and the church for our children, then we see faith explode in the hearts of kids. And Lord, that would be an amazing thing too, to just watch Dax to continue to grow and to be a man of God that's going to proclaim your name here and maybe all over the world. Who knows? Um, but we are thankful, Lord, we were able to witness that. And so help us, Lord, to have that same humility and same awe at watching one of your children follow in obedience. Help us to be obedient to your word as well. We love you. Amen. So we're going to spend the summer in the book of James. I'm not sure how many weeks it's going to take. Um, I was kind of thinking about it while we were gone, and um, I didn't want to think too much because I was supposed to be not thinking about things. Uh, but that's hard for me. And so uh, I think we'll be most of the summer in it because there's some large chunks of Scripture and some really things in here that are kind of hard to disseminate and hard to figure out. Like when James says, faith without works is dead. Which is what we always think about when we look at the book of James. Like, but Mike, you consistently tell me I don't earn my salvation. You consistently say it's grace, it's a free gift. We don't have any say in it. The Holy Spirit captures our heart. That we are part of this family because God chased us. So then what about this works thing that James is talking about? Well, we'll put it in proper context and you'll get it. But it's not today. So I have more time to think about how I'm going to preach that. (laughs) Today we're going to talk about trials and temptations. Um, James is no stranger to trials and temptations. Um, James and the church he's in is a church that was scattered after Stephen was martyred. The book of James is a book that is filled with ways to be practical in our faith, and it's also filled with ways to encourage our faith. Um, So when you think about faith, we think about, well, it's an option, it's a thing. Well, in the book of James, there's... Look at my notes. 59 different commands. So you have the way biblical literature plays out. The book of Genesis is filled with poetry, history. It's a narrative. It's a, you're supposed to read the book of Genesis as a story unfolding. When you read the Psalms, they're worship and lament. You read the book of Psalms as individual worship songs and laments. So you, you go from, God, you're amazing, you're awesome, you're everything, you're everlasting, to, God, I don't feel you near. And so you get worship is also coming to God in our frustration, but also in our praise. You read the prophets that are consistently saying, you people of God, you've missed it. What's your problem? And the prophets try to call them back to their faith, and sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. We land in the Gospels, the eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ himself. That's why a lot of our Bibles have red letters when we're talking about Jesus or his words, because those are the words he spoke. And so we see the story of the Gospel coming to life Fully man, fully God in Jesus. And then we get to like what we just went through the last nine months, the book of Romans. A letter written to a church that's asking questions. A very long, logical, point-by-point theological treaty just saying this is what faith looks like. This is what grace is. Grace is for everyone. And then we get a pastoral epistle like James, where James is writing a personal letter to a church. He's writing a letter to a church He says from the beginning, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. He's writing a personal letter. So a lot of times when we think about our doubts and what we're feeling and what's going on, you hear people say, well, that just shot holes in my faith. Well, that just shot holes in what I'm thinking. And what James is trying to do is he's trying to shoot holes in the doubt that's sticking to our faith. Does that make sense? I think it's an attitude of how we approach the questions we have with God. Something bad happens, so instead we say, well, that that hurt my faith. It's hard for me to believe because something bad happened. And what James is trying to do is point us back to Jesus and say, doubt is never going to go away. It's never going to go away. So instead, he's going to try to shoot holes in our doubt. It's different. I know it it sounds like just one of those pastoral word, word game things I'm trying to play. But I think in the attitude of how we think about our faith, it's everything. Are we trying to just keep our faith solid and never have any doubt? Or are we actually trying to shoot holes in our doubt little by little by little by little? So James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's not a full brother of Jesus because they didn't have the same dad. I don't have to explain biology to you, do I? 
Jesus was divinely born. He was divinely conceived. So James and Jesus are brothers, but they're half-brothers. Now, we have Paul mentioning in Galatians chapter 1 that after three years, so in Galatians chapter 1 we, get the, we understand that after Paul was knocked to his knees on the road to Damascus, he spent three years studying Scripture, reading the Old Testament, sharing faith, communing with God in prayer before he ever started a truly public ministry. He then goes to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So he went to go see Peter. He went to go see the apostles. But they were all gone. I saw none of the, old, the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. So James is left in Jerusalem. He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem to Jews converting to Christianity. He's not a pastor of Gentiles necessarily. He's a pastor of the Jews in Jerusalem. He's the guy. But this is Jesus' brother. Can you imagine that? It's one of the greatest apologetic tests that people try to use in looking at Scripture is the fact that James comes to faith in Jesus when the whole family denied him. Because we all, if you have a sibling, if you were blessed with a sibling, or you might call it a blessing to have a sibling, I'm not sure. If one of your siblings came to you and said, Hey, I'm the Messiah, how would you react? Well, you might think you're the Messiah because the way Dad treats you, but you're not, right? That's kind of what would happen. You, wouldn't, you would have no faith in that at all. You would kind of make fun of them. And so Jesus consistently even said, Hey, my brother and my family's out there. My mom my brother's out there trying to drag me away. They're not my real family. The church is my real family. Because they weren't believers at the time. He says, You're my brothers and sisters because we all share a faith. They're not. But then something miraculous happens. And Jesus dies, he rises from the dead, and then everyone who sees him for 40 days after is blown away. And James would have been one of those. He wasn't one of the apostles walking around with Jesus. He had come to faith after Jesus' resurrection. So, I mean, if you have a sibling, you can go, yeah, it'd be hard for me to believe that my brother is the Messiah. Unless he was beaten, crucified, dead, and rose again, then I would believe it. Because just saying it in some miracles, I'm not going to believe that because you're my brother. I know what games you played when we were kids, right? So even that in itself shows, like a, a, it's a good apologetic road to go down to say his actual brother called him Messiah and served in the church. But James also was a guy that never gave up. He wasn't a guy to fake his faith. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So think about that. All the other apostles had been sent out. They were sent out. They scattered. They went out. They were, they were doing ministry in other areas. And James is given the task of taking care of this church in Jerusalem. Now we know that on the first sermon that Peter gave after the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the number in that day. And they kept growing. So this wouldn't have been a small church plant. He would have been the pastor of a quite large church in Jerusalem. But he would never back down. So the same people existed in that city during James's time as existed when Jesus was there. The same religious people that couldn't stand him. The same people that thought he was a rebel. The same people that wanted Jesus dead would want this church to be smashed. And James refused to back down. He refused to back down. They took him to the top of the temple. And they threw him from the top. He hits the ground and doesn't die. His legs are broken. He's broken man on the ground. And they again say, recant. Your brother wasn't the Messiah. He, Jesus is a joke. It's, not a, it's a lie. Recant. Deny the faith. And he refuses. And he prays for them. And they crack his head open with a stick. And they kill him. He's martyred. But before he was martyred, the church was scattered because of the martyrdom of Stephen. We see in the book of Acts, chapter 7, that Stephen is out there as a deacon in the church, serving people, professing faith, and they stone him to death because he proclaims Christ as king. And when that happens, the church freaks. Jesus died. He came back. He gave us the Holy Spirit. The apostles are walking out of jail cells. They're standing up to the Sanhedrin. They're untouchable. 3,000 come in one sermon. More and more people are coming. More and more are added to the number daily. More and more are showing up. They're, they're, they're amassing quite the church. And they think they're untouchable. Now you know what they're thinking. We're growing. 
The Jewish people got to listen to us. Pretty soon we're going to have that temple. We're not going to be meeting in homes and shacks and shanties. We're going to take over the temple. And we're going to put the cross in there instead of the menorah. We're going for it. And then Stephen is killed. And the crowds swell. And they stone him for just speaking in the courtyard. And the Jews who had converted to Christianity were terrified. If they killed Stephen, what are they going to do to us? And they scattered. The church empties. Not totally, but the church empties of lots of, its, of the followers of Christ. Now, just as an aside, that's exactly what God used to spread his name. So sometimes, we're talking about trials and temptations, sometimes trials enter into the church, and we think, oh, where is God? Oh, how could he do this? And it's exactly what he uses to spread his name. The church in China is a perfect example. All Christians and missionaries were thrown out in the 50s during the Great Purges and during the Communist Revolution. We're all thrown out. And everyone thought, oh no, the church is going to be gone. Jesus isn't going to be known. And when the, finally, after 40 years, China opens back up to trade and to commerce and to let people in, and they find out the church went underground and flourished. To the point where there are Chinese missionaries coming to the United States to share faith with us. To the point where they're sweeping all over Asia. Chinese missionaries are sweeping all over Asia and Eastern Europe to share the faith of Jesus Christ. That we think by 2020 there will be more Christians in China than our people in the United States. We claim a great Christian nation, but when you look at like actual people that go to church, we're about 18%. There's more people in the United States now that believe in nothing than actually believe in Jesus Christ. So you have that kind of thing happening where even though trials come, the church grows in the midst of the trials. Now, does that mean we should pray for trials? Please, Lord, bring the apocalypse. That would be great. You know, not the real apocalypse, but like the zombie one. Like, that's not what we want. We don't pray for that stuff. But when trials come, we can't just look at it as, God hates us. And that's what James is trying to get at. So he writes to them, James, a servant of, the God, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. to the twelve. Just think about that even itself, that he calls his brother Lord. That would be hard for my brother to call me Lord, I think. I don't know that I could call my brother Lord. That'd be kind of difficult. To the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Now he's not meaning the literal twelve tribes of Israel. He's saying to the church, greetings. Now think about what would happen if you were pastor, some tough times come, and your church empties by 70%. Would you just say, eh, that's all right. Would you just like write letters to them? Greetings. Even though you've left, I still love and care for you, and I want to encourage you. Would you write a letter saying, way to go, leave me when we're down? Is that what you would do? Well, think of the pastor heart that James has. He could be frustrated with him, but he sees the opportunity about to happen, and he's like, you've scattered, but you need to still cling to your Christian faith. I know trials have come, but don't ever forget Jesus. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it joy when trials come your way. That's not easy to read or even to think about. Thank you, Lord, for the trial you've sent me. I count it joy that this is coming my way. We just listed a couple people for prayer concerns for cancer. In that moment, do you say, thank you, Lord, for the joy of cancer? Now, if you would say that, then we would need to have some longer counseling sessions because you probably shouldn't say that. However, as you'll see as we keep going through this, a mature faith can still find Christ in the midst of any trial. God isn't asking us through a servant James to not doubt, and he's not asking us to just believe everything that we read. He's not asking us to not question God, not to cry out to him. He's not saying that. I'll prove it to you. One of my favorite passages um, in Mark chapter 9 is when the father comes to Jesus and says, my son needs healed. And Jesus says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Because the father had taken him to the disciples and the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. So this father comes to the source, comes to Jesus. And Jesus is frustrated because the disciples don't get it People don't get it. He's a little frustrated. 
And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy and fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So the demon that was possessing him knew exactly who Jesus was. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can? He's a little offended. If I can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now this is where it gets tricky. Because if we stop right there, we enter into the blasphemy of the prosperity gospel. One of the most damaging, destructive teachings that's hit this country and hit the world in the last 50 or 60 years. If you just believe hard enough, it'll go away. Well, that guy's, he's in the hospital, he's dying, he just doesn't have faith. If he had more faith, he'd get up out of that bed and walk. In the name of Jesus, walk. Right? How many people's faith has been crushed and their hope destroyed when someone says that? Does Jesus say that here to him? All things are possible for one who believes. And the Father says immediately, I believe, help my unbelief. One of the gutsiest, most honest statements a dad could ever make. I believe in you, I believe you can, but I, I'm lost, man. I believe, but you've got to help me actually believe this is going to happen. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the, the demon leaves. What's interesting, Jesus waits for a crowd to come running before he rebukes the clean spirit. He wants this to be a public display. He wants everyone to see the power that he has over this demon. And I would argue he also wants to see the power of this humble father who believes but also has doubt. That if you would come to me and say, I don't doubt anything, I wouldn't call you a liar to your face, but I would believe it in my heart. If you can honestly tell me you have zero doubts about God or faith, you have zero doubts about how this world is functioning or working, if you say, I have no doubts at all, then I would question whether you've, you've never bled. You've never had a trial. You've never had something hit. You've never watched the news. You've not opened up the paper and read that something tragic happened. And so James isn't telling us here to count it all joy. When you meet a trial, just say, oh, thank the Lord that I'm suffering. I'm so happy about this suffering. Because Jesus didn't do that. When Lazarus dies and he goes and meets Mary and Martha, what's he do? He weeps with them. Now he knew he was going to go raise him from the dead. Why is he crying? He didn't walk in and say, you silly women, what's your problem? Get up. He didn't do that. He wept with them because their hearts had been broken. He'd been dead for days. He was devastated at the pain and the, su the suffering they went through in their loss. He loved them. So we see throughout other parts of Scripture pouring into this piece of Scripture, this isn't James saying, mindlessly count all suffering as joy. He's helping us to see that trials help to grow us in our strength. He continues through three sections, the trial of wisdom, the trial of circumstances, and the trial of temptation, that there are multiple trials coming our way. So that the understanding is that trials come. They're coming to all of us. They might be serious medical trials. They could be personal trials. They could be trials in marriage, trials at work. We're all facing them. They're all coming for us. And James is encouraging this church that has seen someone killed for their faith and they're terrified. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, didn't I just read you a piece of scripture that says it was okay to doubt? And James is throwing this at us? That's why it's so important that we let the Bible read the Bible. That we look at the Bible in its entire context. Because if you read this, and I sent you home with just this piece of scripture, then you would walk home going... I have doubt, I must have no faith. 
I doubt that God could be good when 50 people just died in a nightclub. I doubt that God could be good because my good friend who eats spinach and eats great food and is super healthy just got cancer. You do know that kale is dying and now seaweed is a new superfood, right? I read that last week. As much as I make fun of kale, I'll be making fun of seaweed in a matter of months. Isn't that what happens? Like everything is great until a trial hits. And then isn't that what refines us? Do we really believe what we say every Sunday? Or when the trial hits, doesn't that help sift us and shake us and help temper us and help to let the impurities rise to the top? That what comes out of us when a trial happens, we're like, that's really what's in my heart. And I need to work on that. I need to give that to God. I need to press into Jesus in this. So he tells us, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God. It's all about the humble heart. And he's talking about the double-minded man at the end. How do you approach God in your questions? Do you have a humble heart that says, I don't understand this word. I don't get you, God. Will you please show me the way? Will you please open my eyes to this? Will you please put someone in my life to help, me explain, help explain it to me? Will you show me a book, a movie, something that's going to give me insight? Or do you approach the Bible and go, well, I would have written this better if you gave me the chance. Do you come with your doubt to the scripture to prove that you're right and God is wrong? Or do you come to the very word of God with a humbleness that says, I'm confused by this. I don't get this. I don't like this. I can't stand this scripture from you, Lord. But I believe in the inerrancy of scripture. I believe in your goodness. Give me the wisdom to understand. For me, one of the largest um, struggles I had early in my faith was over creation and evolution and the world and the book of Genesis was a huge issue for me. Um, I wasn't saved until I was 17, graduating high school, went right off to college as a social science major. So if you know anything about social scientists, you know not some are good and respect God, but a lot of the ones I encountered in my southern Indiana education were antagonistic towards the scriptures. And even if they were believers, they felt it was their job to poke holes in the scripture because that was their job. I a couple of professors I got to know really well that I found out after I graduated and taught with them at the local community college. Like they professed a faith in Christ. Why did you like you caused some of the greatest doubts in my life? Why did you do that? Well, that's my job to play devil's advocate. And I re- rebutted, "Why would you ever advocate for the devil? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard." <laughs> now you can say I want to show you another side or another opinion. I'm going to play devil's advocate. That's a that's a ridiculous statement. I want to advocate for the one who wants you all dead. That's not okay. And so for years, the issue of evolution and creation fried my brain. It was hard for me to reconcile my faith with that in all the classes I was taking. So I chose, I don't know if it was wise or not, to just put it on a shelf. Like I'm going to take this issue I'm struggling with and put it on a shelf, and I'm not going to worry so much about it because I believe in all my mind, soul, and spirit God saved me, and I'm a Christian, and Jesus loves me, and the cross is real, and I need him for my salvation. So Amber and I were married at 21. So I remember three years, so we were married, so at least three years into this faith, and there was a place we would always go eat. Uh, It's Applebee's, I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not, but kind of like everyone going to the new Dairy Queen, because it's a new Dairy Queen, it's the same Dairy Queen, it's all across the country, it's just new. Well, there was an Applebee's. We'd never eaten it once. I was like, Applebee's is amazing. They have all this stuff. And now, I don't think we ever go there. But it was here at the strip mall. It was Applebee's, the Christian bookstore, and some other place. And I don't remember what that is. I don't know if Amber even remembers it. And so we'd eat lunch after church. And then she would go to this place. And I didn't want to go there. So it may have been a clothing place. I'm not sure. And it was a uniform shop, wasn't it? I don't know. Anyway. And then the Christian bookstore was there. And I would go in the Christian bookstore, much to the chagrin of my wife, because I can't walk into a bookstore without at least purchasing two books. And so I bust our budget all the time on books. And so then I would walk in and just look. And one Sunday, after years of struggling through this, there's an end cap that has a book called The Darwin Delusion, which is a pamphlet version of a much larger book, published by InterVarsity Press. And it's 90 pages long, like, I'll just grab it. I mean, I don't know if this is going to help or not. And it helped me frame how to think about science and evolution and creation in a way that that didn't make me just a closed-minded person that's going to say, well, no, I mean, dinosaurs never existed, or Job wrote a dinosaur. I didn't get into that kind of spot. 
which, I mean, could, be, could have worked. I mean, if you read the Leviathan. But it also didn't say, I've got to throw my faith out the window. The book of Genesis doesn't exist anymore. It's just a narrative poem that I can't take anything literal out of that. This book helped me. For three years, I set that issue on the shelf and didn't let it destroy my faith, but I prayed consistently for wisdom. I prayed consistently, help me with this, God. Help me with this. I don't know this. I don't, and then it shows up in a book. Now, there was a time in my life I would say that was a great coincidence. But I know better that it was a divine, providential moment where God said, it's time for you to think about this. Because I probably wasn't ready early in my faith to even understand it or think about it. He gave it to me when I was ready. But I never stopped praying for the wisdom. Do you approach all things in Scripture that way that cause you to doubt? Or do you just say, I don't like it, therefore it can't be true? I don't like it because I have this circumstance in my life, so there's no way God would work that way. Or do you say, humbly, show me, God. I don't know. It could come in a sermon, come in a podcast, come in a radio broadcast. It could come on a TV show, come in a movie. It could just hit you, and all of a sudden, everything changes. But if you aren't praying for the wisdom, if you've just sealed the deal and said, I've made my decision, it's what C.S. Lewis called intellectual snobbery. Essentially saying, I'm the smartest person that's ever been born because I was born in 1976. And that makes me smarter than any other person in the room. All the people before me are morons. And because I was born in 76, I'm brilliant. And you see that all over. Well, I'm 20 years old. I have access to Google. I understand the scriptures more than you. Okay. How about read this person that was writing in 400 AD? How did they interpret it then? Well, it doesn't matter. I have Facebook. And I have a status that says I'm smart. That doesn't mean anything. Do you approach the scriptures with a humility to say, God, read me. Let me be moved by you. And that's what James is getting at. We can't be double-minded. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is not James saying it's bad to have money. This is James saying that trials are the great equalizer in our faith. That you can have great success, great wealth. You can have your name in lights. You can be on the Forbes 100 list. You can have great influence. You can be the hottest growing whatever industry you're involved in. And then you can get the call and a sickness or a car accident stops it. It's the great equalizer. If you are sick or tragedy happens or a trial comes, just because you've had a great run of 40 years of life doesn't mean that it can't take you out in an instant and it's the great equalizer. So the poor man, who's humble and understands his existence, it would be lowly by society standards, is brought to the same level of faith in the midst of the exact same trial. A place of dependence upon the Lord and the Lord alone. Like, think about how many people you know that have had great health, great wealth, and then a tragedy hits and it rocks everything to the core. And people who have nothing around the world, have materially, have nothing, and they will live long lives in service to the Lord. James is just saying, just because you have wealth, then you shouldn't think that you're better than others, because trials will come and will knock your legs right out from under you. Isn't that the person that, now I don't mean in the beginning, when you first get the phone call, we all say, why me? We all do. We all say, why'd this happen? We all say, how could this happen? We all say, where was God? We all do that. But think of the longevity of the person, even through treatment. Well, why hasn't my money got me a cure? Why can't I get to the best doctors? Why can't we do more? Why can't we do these things? There's nothing left to do. There's nothing left to do. Trials are the great equalizer in a society that puts people on a pedestal that have a lot of money, or have a lot of wealth, or have a lot of fame. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood, stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 
Now, this crown isn't a jeweled crown. It's not a crown from Burger King. You know you still put them on when your kids get them. You run around the house. You're good. He's talking about a crown that the people reading this at the time would have, re- would have equated more with the Olympics that are coming up this summer. Because when you achieved an athletic prowess and you won in athletics, you got a crown. And so they wouldn't have been thinking about the crowns of kings because kings didn't really necessarily wear them. The crown would have been for athletes. And so you, you, James is trying to paint the picture. Blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial. Not saying blesses a man who never faces a trial. Only blessed men don't have trials. He's saying trials are coming. But because you go through those trials, you'll get the crown of life. So think about, I'm clearly not a high-level athlete. I don't have the stature or the physique for that. But think about all the athletes you know or the athlete you used to be in your younger years. How much skin did you leave on the court? How much blood did you leave on the field? How many bruises did you come home with after football practice? How many times did your ankle get sprained when you landed on someone's ankle on the basketball court? How many times were you just worn out? Just worn out after practice? And wasn't it all worth it when you made the state team? You made the regional team? You just made the team. How many times was it worth it? That's what James is getting at. Is that if we go through the trials like an athlete goes through the the back-breaking, bone-jarring, physical altercations that lead to good performance, you get the crown. He's telling us, you might sweat, you might bleed, you might be broken in body, but at the end, you get the crown of life. It's promised to us, to those who love him. It's promised to you. So even though trials break us, They do not defeat us. Because we have a picture of eternity. David Platt, um, in a commentary in James, says this, One day every person is going to stand before Almighty God, and God's goal from now until then is to prepare you for that day. We don't think like this, for we think the goal of life is to be successful, to have a nice job, to get a raise, to achieve a standing in the world, to attain a certain goal, or to have a certain kind of family. If our goal is to know God and to be conformed to his likeness, then we can take joy in trials because we can know that no matter how tough these trials are, they are moving us toward our goal. If the goal is just to retire at 45, which I will not be able to do, if the goal is to retire at 45 and to sit in a chair on a beach sipping colorful drinks through a rainbow, then you have very small goals. Your goal is comfort today, but you have no vision for eternity. So when those are your goals, you're driven by those and those alone, then when a trial hits you, you're completely rocked. Now, as you achieve, you build businesses, you create jobs, great wealth, you teach, you serve, you do all these great things. You don't have to worry about money. You have enough money to take care of yourself and your family, and you're not stressed over it, then you still have to have a humility that says, thank you, God, for blessing me in these hundred different ways. But I trade them all tomorrow for you. James isn't trying to go after our successes. Think of all the people you know that have used their success and leveraged it for the kingdom who said, thank you, Lord, for blessing me in this way, and because you've blessed me, I will be a blessing to the nations. I'll be a blessing to my neighbor. I, I know some of you have done this. You've told me about it, and you would never want the church to know about it. I won't share your names or what you did. God blesses you in some great ways, and so you become a blessing to others, and you don't want any fame or fortune out of it. You just want to help, because God has taken care of you, and you're going to take care of others. That's what he's getting at. That you have a mind for eternity, not just a mind for today, and you're not selfish in all that he blesses you with. Um, two men that have gone home to be with the Lord in the last three years since I've been here really amplified this for me. When Warren Lauer was struggling through his cancer, I didn't know Warren anything other than his struggles in cancer. I didn't know the man other than his fight. 
And there'd be weeks he couldn't come to our weekly time of prayer. And then he would show up and he would always apologize that he couldn't be there. And you could watch everyone, all the elders around the room going, um, you're fighting cancer? It's okay. We're glad you're here. We'd ask him how he was doing. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm getting along. And then he would immediately start putting prayer requests. How can I pray? How can I help? How can I help other people? Let's pray for other people. He was almost to a fault not wanting his own name added to the prayer list. And in his last days, the only thing he worried about or was concerned about was the faith of his family. He wasn't worried about his name being on a plaque somewhere. He wasn't worried about having any kind of inheritance for his family. He wasn't worried about, I didn't do enough. He wasn't worried about any of those things. All he cared about was, I don't want my death and my suffering to rock my family. Will you pray with them? Will you love on them? Will you care for them? Larry Taylor, when he was lost his fight to cancer as well, I'll never forget being within 20 minutes after he got the news they were not going to do treatment anymore. I show up at the house, and he's on the couch, and we hug, and we cry, and he says, he really couldn't say anything. He just put his head back on the couch, and he's like, oh God, why? Oh God, why? And then he would put his head back up, and he would say, but Jesus is good, and I know he's going to take care of my family. But I'm not ready to go, Mike. I'm not ready to go. Tears in his eyes, and then he would switch and say, within instance, but heaven's going to be great. And don't you think that's a great testimony of a man steadfast in his faith? He's weepy. He doesn't want to go. None of us want to. None of us are ultimately ready when God calls us home. But a steadfast man who's not double-minded, who has humility, who has a truth in, a belief, true belief in Jesus Christ as king and has a mind for eternity can say, I'm not ready to go. I don't want to go. I want to see my daughter. I want to walk my daughter down the aisle. I want to see my son grow in stature. But Lord... If this is the time, I know you're good. I know you're good. James is trying to get this church to see that. Martin Luther says it this way. I love this quote. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is not the road. It is the road. And does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. God's not finished with you. We never arrive at perfection until we go home or he comes and gets us. So it's always going to be a journey of faith. There's always going to be more to know, more to grow deeper in, more to understand. There's always going to be more. And I think because of how we are as a culture, we think education and learning stops in stages and we should just understand. Well, I made it through high school. Now I want to make it through college. Well, now I, I haven't made it through marriage, but I made it to get married. I maybe didn't get married ever. I've had kids. I've raised kids. I never had kids. There's, we just think in stages. And it's hard for us to see that faith is a continuous journey that never ends. You're going to consistently grow. Then we get the question of temptation in this section of Scripture. Great Mike, trials, steadfastness, humility, we get all that. But what about temptation? James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives forth death. God doesn't tempt any of us. He's good. He doesn't tempt you. He doesn't send temptation your way. Temptation is in us. That's what James is getting at. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So when you are tempted with sin, that is not from God. <clears throat> that is your internal, broken creation from birth 
coming out of you. Can Satan send temptation? Of course he can. But God does not tempt you. You can't say, well, you know, if God didn't want me to smoke that, he wouldn't have planted it. Why would he tempt me like that? You can't say, if God didn't want me to cheat on my wife, he wouldn't have made the female form so beautiful. So it's God's fault. So I was just following my nature and following God's... He tempted me. God tempted me. God put her in my life. And so he did that. And so when we had an affair, that's because God did that. Have you not heard people say things like that? It's not my fault. I wasn't tempted because God gave it to me. And James is saying, that's so far from the truth. He's saying those desires come out of us. A good desire. A good desire for a good job. A good desire for security. A good, a good desire in us to have a spouse, to have a partner, to have friends, to have family, to have people around us, to be in community. And then our temptation, the sin that bubbles out of us, is then the temptation that causes us to wreck it all. How many friendships have you been around that are destroyed because one of the people in your friendship wanted to have complete control over the friendship? How many marriages have we seen destroyed because someone gave in to temptation? Like, I can't, I can't find any logic in the scripture that says my dad cheated on my mom twice because God decided to put those people in his job sphere and so that was God doing that because God wanted my parents to get divorced. Because if God tempted that, then God wants to destroy the institution that he created? That makes no logical sense whatsoever. So instead, my dad had in him the proclivity to sin that we all have, and in the temptations, he didn't fight against the temptation by drawing closer to Christ. He gave in to the temptation. Which leads to sin. How do you know when your temptations are leading into sin? It's when you dwell on them. It is summer. I know in Wyoming it's not really ever bathing suit season. But if you live anywhere else in the country where it's warmer more often, then there becomes bathing suit season. And if you take your family to the pool, to the beach, and you are a guy, then there's going to be temptations come in front of your face. So the only way to avoid... The only way to avoid all temptation would be then to poke your own eyes out. Right? And then you know what would happen? You would think about the last woman you saw in your mind. Because temptation isn't going to go away even with your eyes poked out. So how do you know when it's gone from temptation to sin? It's when you dwell on that. When you see a flash of an image or flash of an idea or flash of a sin that's going to come to you, then you give it to Christ. You speak scripture. You pray. You turn your eyes. You turn your head. You flee from sin. And when you begin to dwell on it, then that temptation has become sin. When you begin to fantasize about what it would be like to be with that other woman, you're in sin. And then that leads to death. It might not necessarily be physical true death, but it does lead to a spiritual death, a loss of relationship. I don't know anybody, any, any couple I've ever worked through after an affair, any people I've ever known that's been in an affair, that have been through divorce. I don't know anybody that just walks, says, you know, I was just walking down the street and I decided, you know what, today's the day I want to cheat on my wife. And so I found the first woman that was willing and I did it. I've never met a person like that. Never. I've never met a person that says, you know, today I was just going along and um, I decided today was the day that I was going to kill somebody. And I just picked a random person and I got my gun and I shot him. There's always a progression that leads from a sinful desire, a temptation, that becomes sin that leads to death. Always. At least I can't think of an example of just a sudden one. 
There's always something there that's brewing. So we're born in this iniquity. We're born into sin, and it comes out. So James is telling them, let no one say that God tempts you. He doesn't tempt you. That's your sinful flesh coming out. Does that make sense? To two of you. Okay. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Trials are gifts, but don't be deceived by outward appearance or internal emotions. James is telling us that the trials that come, if God gives the trial to you, it's a gift. And if the trial comes because of a broken world, then it's still a trial that's not a temptation from God. God is good. If God is allowing the trial to happen, then he's good for not snuffing us all out in an instant. He shouldn't have told Noah to build the ark, and he would have been good and glorious in God for not telling him. He didn't have to send his son Jesus. He could have wiped us all out. Have you, Moses prayed, don't kill them all. And God heeds. And he would have been good and righteous for it. God is good, and everything that comes from him is good. So then we're left with the struggle. Did God send this so it would be, bring glory to his name? Or is this a trial that's come because we're in a broken world? And usually I just answer yes. Because I don't know, and I am not God, and I am not going to say this trial's coming because you needed to be refined. And I don't dare say, well, this trial's coming just because the world stinks. Because it could be a test from God. It could be a trial. Because if we have that long vision, that long vision of eternity, then even trials he sends are for his glory and for our good. Now, in the midst of it, you don't say those things. If you do, you're a fool. You don't say those things. Usually what happens is people come to that conclusion themselves under the power of the Holy Spirit. I know that we've read some of Matt Chandler's books and um, watched his Bible studies and stuff, and he's a pastor in Texas, and I have great respect for the guy. But when he had cancer, it's been seven years now that he's been in remission with brain cancer, he was known by a small circle of people. If you're like churchy, nerdy, nerdy Christians, you knew who he was. If you're like, you know, me, then you knew who he was. But you never heard of the guy before that. He gets brain cancer, and all of a sudden, USA Today, Time Magazine, all these people are picking up his story. That even through his brain cancer, he had faith in Christ and never wavered. That they publicly put on, in video, on social media, his whole struggle all the way through it. And now he has an influence and a range of the gospel message that he's never had before. So when you hear him talk about it, he consistently says it was a gift from God and he is thankful that God trusted him with cancer. Now, if you listen to the very beginning, if you're, like, if you're a nerd like me and we're listening all the way through it, he didn't say that stuff in the beginning. He was thankful for the prayers and getting through the struggle and he was asking for prayers for his family and prayers for him. But afterwards, he was able to say boldly it was a gift from God. I pray I have that kind of faith if a trial like that comes my way. I pray that I can be like, the, all the, like Larry and like Warren and say, I know my salvation is secure, and I know this stinks, and I don't want to leave my wife, and I don't want to leave my kids, but I know God's got them because nothing bad comes from him. Only good comes from him. Sometimes that's hard to say. Sometimes it's even harder to believe. But if we come at him humbly and we aren't double-minded, he will show us the way. So to close, a quote I got out of a commentary. Remember that God is good, so very good, and he wants that which is good for you. So trust him in your trials and trust to him and turn to him in your temptations. He is the source of everything good. He's the source of all good things that exist. And if other people's sin has had influence and impact on you, it's not because God sent it your way. It's because they succumbed to the temptation and sin. God didn't send it. 
He's good. And if he did send it, he did it for your good. He's nothing but good. He loves you. And we're going to see as we continue through the book of James, how we get to that place is through a consistency in studying the scriptures, a consistency in prayer, and a consistency in Christian community. Because when we don't feel we have the strength to believe, God puts people in our lives to help build us up. He helps people to wrap around us. And that helps us to grow. So first and foremost, are you allowing God to be glorified in your life? Or do you seek to just receive the glory without the pain? If all you want Jesus for is the good stuff, then you've made an idol of him. He's not your Lord. But if you want him and him alone, then you have a right understanding of the gospel. Jesus is everything. At the end of the day, we get him. And that's all we could ask for. Everything else is common grace and blessing from above. But if he takes all of that away from us and we still get Jesus, we win for eternity. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. In a somewhat difficult text of trials and temptations. And if we're honest in this room, Lord... None of us want that to be true. None of us want trials. None of us want to be tempted. If it was as easy as gouging out our own eyes or cutting off our hand to run from sin and temptation, then we would do it. But it's not that easy, Lord. Our hearts are broken. Our hearts are broken by sin and broken by temptations that can grow in us. So help us, Lord, to break them. And the only way to do that is to press into our relationship with you. We can't white-knuckle grip our sanctification. We have to rely on you to do the work in us. We don't have the strength, we don't have the power, and you don't ask us to. You ask us to put our faith and trust in you, and you will save us from ourselves, and you'll save us for eternity. Help us. Help us to put you before anything else. We love you, Jesus. Amen.